Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Jonathan Latham. He's a co-founder and executive director of the Bioscience Resource Project and the editor of Independent Science News. He's also the director of the Poison Papers Project that publicizes documents on the chemical industry and its regulation. Uh, Dr. Latham has a master's degree in crop genetics, a PhD in virology. Uh, he was also a postdoc research associate in the Department of Genetics, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, he's published numerous papers in disciplines such as plant ecology, plant virology, genetics, and genetic engineering. So uh, glad to speak to him today. Jonathan, thanks for coming. Hi there, Richard. Yeah. So I know there's many things um, we can talk about. Uh, one that I wanted to start off with, um, this, this concept was espoused by Dennis Noble. Uh, he had said that there's no privileged level of causation in biology. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had asked him about it, but I know you had some commentary on this. So uh, would you speak about this first, if you wouldn't mind? Um, yeah, for sure. For a long time, I've been very interested in the, the kind of prominence that we give to genes and DNA in our discussions of biology. and you know, I, I steadily come to the realization that uh, there are a lot of flaws in the way that we think about organism. And we have come around to, to a position that is, I think, basically identical to uh, Dennis Noble's, that uh, organisms are not uh, controlled by any particular subpart of them, not their genes, not their proteins, not anything. And that the only agency that exists in an organism is the one that derives from the organism itself. So, for example, you know, you may you may fall ill one day, and the cause of that illness can be your stomach, or it can be your uh, the state of your brain, or it can be the state of any other of your organisms, organ, organ sorry, and and that so that causation. You know, there is a pathway of causation there, but it doesn't, uh, uh, you know, it may pass through genes at some point in its uh, travels, but the genes don't have a special role in that system as far as I'm concerned. And I become more and more convinced about this. Um, And so I can elaborate more if you want, but perhaps that's the best opening statement. Well, I guess it's like like asking um, in a cell, where is the life in it? What part of it is makes it alive? You know, mm-hmm. and, and I guess you're saying perhaps the cell in its entirety. It's, uh, we can't break apart certain pieces or take off certain pieces, and the the cell still be alive. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You know, the Tolkien statement about about someone who takes a, takes an organism apart has departed from the path of wisdom. You know, like that, that is a, uh, there is a value sometimes in taking things apart, but, but in, especially in the case of organisms, you know, the actual agency 
that resides in that organism is an indivisible thing in a certain sense. Hmm. Um, so, all right. So your view, how is your view that uh, genes aren't the end all be all, I guess I'll put it. Um, hmm. How has it shaped how you do science, how you view science and how you do all your work? Well, you know, I'm going to write a book actually about this. And, and the, the reason for writing the book is basically to try to understand why, why we give all this prom, prominence to DNA. And, uh, and so, so there's, you know, what I intend to basically argue in the book is quite a radical thing, which is that uh, the reason why we, uh, we, we try, we impute so much to DNA is that we have the greatest difficulty as humans in imagining uh, that a complicated, sophisticated system can operate without some kind of leadership properties somewhere in it. And so there's a classic, classic example in Owen Schrodinger's uh, What is Life book, which maybe uh, some of your viewers have read. He basically postulates that DNA has some kind of executive function, and he calls it a power molecule. And he uses all these kind of, um, you know, non-scientific descriptions, if you like, of the DNA, because he's struggling to work out how an organism is organized. And what he says is, but, I, you know, I appreciate that I don't have any evidence for this, and that maybe that I simply have plucked this idea out of the fact that I live in a, in a society that is basically organized on a top-down executive and an executive type model system. And that, you know, the implication is that if he lived in a cooperative society, for example, then, then he would have come up with a different thesis of how organisms are actually, uh, how their, their sophisticated actions are actually derived. Mm, okay. Um... What what have you what's been the focus of your work? Uh, I guess most recently, what you know, have you been consumed in the uh, yeah. you know uh, the coronavirus uh, mess that's all encompassing, or uh, you know what what's been lately the focus of your work and your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I don't feel I answered your your question perfectly in the sense that that uh, you know I've, what we've ended up doing is is going on a big historical perspective and about uh, you know how biology came to be basically organized around uh, uh, a genetic determinist notion because, uh, because it's essentially what, what, what I think happened is that uh, if, you talk, if you think about how bio, biologists understood biology before Darwin, it, it was basically holistic biology that they, that they were operating as a model. And, and what happened with Darwin was basically that, that uh, he, he offered to basically upend the whole understanding of biology. And he offered to do that in, in such a way as it was really obvious to people then, but it's not obvious to us now. So, so the, what, what happened was that, that um, when, when the royal family, the English royal family, right, they basically went to, to um, uh, Thomas Huxley, who was you know, famously Darwin's bulldog, and they told him, they said to him, basically, you know, what does this theory of Darwinism have to do with us, right? Because, uh, you know, for, 
for the longest time, you know, we've imagined we're genetically superior and we have a lineage and we have a, a heritage that is superior to that of ordinary people. And they basically asked Huxley, uh, what is, you know, what, what is the history of that, that heritage if we're not put on this earth by, by God? Were we, you know, because you can see the wheels going on in their heads, right? Of like, were we the king of the monkeys once? You know, like they've got this, they've got this whole idea of like, you know, how is this, how is this going to work well for us? And and Huxley basically said uh, that there will be no revolution, right? That we will basically formulate what he basically offered them was a promise that they would formulate biology in such a way that that would cause, would cause basically the laws of inheritance to be preserved, right? Because, because essentially the royal family, they inherit the kingdom, they rely on the laws of inheritance. And if, if biology refutes the laws of inheritance, then basically it becomes a heresy. So what he basically promised was to keep, to preserve the laws of inheritance. And, and it wasn't clear to him, for example, like how could Huxley know that he had a, a, uh, that the royal family had better DNA or genome or, you know, they didn't use the word DNA and they didn't use the word genome, but they had an idea. Darwin had some ideas about gemules and how they came from previous generations. But of course, Huxley had no idea that these gemules would be any better in the royal family than they would in the rest of the society, British society at that time. And he had no idea, for example, that men had better gemules than women did, which was, you know, part of the part of the uh, patriarchal uh, royal family lineage thing, right? Is basically men are superior to women. So he had no understanding, but he made this promise to the royal family. And so the basis of the book that I want to write is basically how he came to write that promise and, and what, what that meant for biology, because it basically committed, basically he was committing biology to a genetic determinist notion, right? For which he at the time had no evidence whatsoever, right? Because all of biology was holistic and was not genetic determinist at all. So I am answering your previous question. The, the, what I'm doing at the moment, I, you may not be on our mailing list, but I put out uh, along with Alison Wilson, my uh, collaborator, we have, um, we've just put out an article called uh, Proposed Origins for the SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, virus and the COVID pandemic. Did you mm. come across that? Um, I had come across one paper that uh, used mathematical terms to look at the, uh, you know, the, the RNA sequences of the virus and then um, try to make a determination that perhaps it was uh, an amalgam of, of various uh, parts of, of of the AIDS virus and uh, a couple other viruses and that it was man-made. I don't know if that's the paper you're referring to, but. Yeah, no, no, that's not ours. So, so we have a theory um, and it's basically that in 2012, there was an outbreak of a disease in a mine in Yunnan province. And uh, essentially the, that the miners, basically the symptoms of those miners is that they had a disease that looked exactly like COVID-19. Mm. They had, uh, and they were, what you also need to know is that they were shoveling bat poo, right? Okay. So these miners, were, they weren't digging coal. They were shoveling bat poo. They were clearing bat poo from a mine. 
and uh, and they had uh, they came down with these symptoms of COVID nineteen, and uh, so they had they had shortness of breath. They uh, three of them died ultimately. So six miners became sick. Three of them died. They had shortness of breath. They got high fevers. They had uh, um, major lung problems, and uh, and they had. Um, I'm trying to think of the other symptoms, but basically they were pretty much identical. Like they all, they, the ones who died seemed to die of a cytokine storm as well. So like a very high fever. Right. So, so what's interesting about these miners is that straight off, well, even while they were still in hospital, the lab of Zheng Li Shi, who is the uh, uh, bat coronavirus. The bat lady, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's the bat lady. She basically went collecting uh, for bat samples, for uh, coronavirus samples in that cave. And she came back with rat G13, which is the nearest living known relative of COVID-19 that we know of. So it is 96.7% identical. I'm going to remember what, forget the points, but the decimal points, but 96 point something percent identical. To um, to SARS-CoV-2, so it's the most um, most similar virus. The next most similar virus is about ninety three percent similar. Okay. So, so it's a it's basically been considered to be the starting point. But like you know, if you want to postulate a lab origin, it's been considered to be that has to be the starting point. And we know that they collected that virus, right? So 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 those are the pieces that people. Put together but not very satisfactorily because because you know where would they where what would they have mixed and matched with what and so on and so forth it does well I, I did i did read a paper that had many collaborators that talked about using um i believe it was uh you know the original sars backbone and doing gain of function research and deliberately yeah. trying to attempt to uh target the ace2 receptor in people and supposedly yeah. it was under the auspices of if this could happen yeah, you know that. <laughs> yeah, and that well, paper seemed to be—I uh, don't know. I mean, it, it, I, I'm surprised the people that uh, were on that paper weren't immediately uh, subpoenaed by every government on earth and forced to disclose everything about their research. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, the you know our theory is a little different than that because mm. basically what we what we've argued is that. Uh, it isn't the sequences from the mind that resulted in the epidemic. What we what we are saying is so essentially the what what the lab of Zheng Li Shi has said is that those miners uh, died of a fungal infection, and so we wanted to work out whether that was true or not. And we found, uh, with some other people's help, we found a master's thesis that describes their symptoms, and so we had it translated because it's in Chinese. So we had it translated, and uh, and it basically lays out that uh, that as I said that they had COVID nineteen symptoms, and that these researchers uh, concluded provisionally that they had a novel coronavirus. These miners, and that that novel coronavirus was basically is what killed them. And they had, uh, for example, Zong Neng Shang, who was like the Chinese hero of the SARS-CoV, uh, of the f- first SARS outbreak. He did consultations with them. So like they had the sort of remote meetings because they're in Yunnan and he's in Guangdong. 
And so they had these uh, remote meetings with him. And, and based on those discussions and you know the various treatments they did of the miners, they concluded they had a coronavirus. Now, what we also know is that they took blood samples and other samples from those miners, and they sent some of them to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right? Mm. So our hypothesis is simply this, that those, in, those miners were sick for basically three or four months, some of them. Like they did not get a normal coronavirus infection. They basically had a, you know, they had a massive dose of a probably maladapted virus, but they nevertheless was competent to infect human cells at some kind of basic level. And they got this infection and it basically went on inside them for months and basically amounted to a huge kind of, they, they, their lungs basically amounted to a huge Petri dish. And so, so there's passaging, there's viruses moving around the lungs through the airways. It's basically continuously evolving. We also know that coronaviruses are very good at recombining with each other. And so, so basically mutations built up over the two, three or four months between either them dying or being discharged, mutations built up that basically adapted the virus to humans. Because one of the big mysteries of the uh, COVID-19 epidemic has been like, why, why is the virus seemingly not evolving? Because, you know, people were predicting at the beginning of the outbreak that there will be, muta- you know, the virus would acquire mutations and they would make it possibly more virulent or make it more, you know, behave differently. Well, well, who is saying it's not evolving? I thought that GISAID has tens mm-hmm. of thousands of sequences and so does the CDC and that yeah. there is a, uh, you know, there is a significant change of the uh you know of the base pairs of the virus they don't you know no one said okay uh, there's new functionality or there's loss of it but i mean i've seen trees online that show it's uh diverging quite a bit yeah yeah so you're totally right so so but that is basically genetic drift that that seems to be going on there right there's no evidence that those mutations uh have advantages over the versions of the virus that previously existed so the, the, uh, there's, been, there's been quite a few papers looking at the evolution of the virus. And some of them have concluded that there is uh, some amount of evolution going on. But the, the biggest and best of those papers have basically concluded there's no, uh, no adaptive. I would, I would like to distinguish between you know, evolution as in genetic drift of the kind that you were just describing and adaptive evolution. So, in, if, for example, if you compare uh, SARS and MERS, the first two coronavirus, beta coronavirus uh, pandemic type viruses, they quickly uh, developed strains that basically dominated all the other strains of the virus because, because you know, it's a, it's a bat virus, right? It comes from a civet or it comes from a dromedary and, and it basically needs to accumulate uh, mutations to adapt it to people. And what's happened with the SARS-CoV-2 is that that hasn't really happened, right? There's, some, there's a little bit of debatable uh, uh, evolution going on. I think there's some questions that can be asked about this, but basically nobody has managed really convincingly to detect any such thing. And so, so the biggest paper that came out uh, about a month ago basically concluded there was no evolution of the virus whatsoever. So this, when I said the biggest paper, I mean the one with the biggest sample size. So they took something like 15,000 genomes and, and mm. 
you know, looked at all those because you know that's how many basically all the all the sequence genomes that are in these databases to try to work out if some of them were were gaining in in uh, you know had a, you know were behaving as if they had an adaptive advantage, and they basically concluded that there weren't any. So so the so this is one of the mysteries, right? You kind of expect something really obvious to happen, and and the, the but at the moment, if there is something happening, it's very subtle. And and so, well, so 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 what does that tell you the, about well, its origin? Yeah, does that tell I mean, you that it, it really must important. have taken a very yeah. long time for it to evolve, or like what does that tell you? Well, it, it tells you it tells you that by the time the first sequence, the Wuhan one sequence, comes out, that the virus is already adapted to people, right, to humans. That mm-hmm. it's not that basically that it's not uh, how to put this that 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 doesn't really have further evolution. To, to go through, and that secondly, that evolution doesn't even, it's not even in human uh, tissue culture that you can get such good evolution, right? Because, because a lot of the adaptive features of the virus imply that it evolved in the presence of a human immune system, right? So if you, if you just, if you know, if, if you wanted to just argue that, that somebody made this virus by genetic engineering, or they made it by passaging it in human cells, that doesn't explain uh, the features of the virus. So th- it's a really important observation that, that, the, that the virus is not adaptively evolving. And so we have, so we puzzled over this for a long time. Like how can, how is it possible for a, for a virus to break out and basically be the perfect virus on day one of its, of its uh, evolutionary trajectory? And, and so, so this is, was one of the major uh, pieces of evidence that caused us to look at passaging and where that passaging could have happened. And, and when, we, when we looked at the results of this master's thesis, we realized that, you know, they'd spent, the virus had basically, if, if, if you accept that, that it came from samples being used by the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that basically they'd have been in those miners long enough to achieve the sort of 20 to 50 year evolution that would require, right? It requires a lot of evolution. Like, even though RAT G13 is the most similar sequence to SARS-CoV-2, it still is uh, 3.5% different, right? That mm-hmm. is 1,200 uh, uh, nucleotides. That, that is still a lot of evolution that needs to happen. So you need to theorize. If you want to argue that it comes to RAT G13, you need to theorize some method by which a lot of evolution can still happen. So the whole, the point of our the sort of deep point of our paper is to is to the sort of technical part of it is to look at these miners and what happened inside these miners. Can you can you posit that there is that ex- extensive amount of evolution inside the bodies of those miners that that by the time they took samples and took them back to the Wuhan Institute of Virology that 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 could potentially be the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Because the other thing that you have to understand is that when this disease broke out in the mine in, in Yunnan, the, you know, the ch- t- uh, hordes of virologists went to that mine to try to work out what virus it was. You know, the people went okay. and discovered a paramyxovirus. People went uh, looking for other co- types of coronaviruses. George Gao, who's the head of the CDC, he had a, a student, graduate student, go and scour the mine. Zheng Li Shi went to this mine. 
you know, minor, virologists are basically queuing up to go to this mine to collect samples from the bats, right? And so there's a huge amount of interest in this mine at that time because you've got a you've got a a country that's been scarred by the SARS the SARS the first SARS outbreak, right? And and so what what that also means is that any samples that are inside the miners are going to be of huge interest to these people because like who what you know what could be more interesting than to find an, a disease outbreak from a bat coronavirus that is basically in the process of adapting itself to people. And, and so the interest in these samples would have been really, really high, right? It's hard to imagine that they were just ignored, those samples. But we do not know what happened at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. All we know is that samples were taken from the miners. We know they took a thymus from the miners, for example. We know they took blood samples. Uh, we know they took other kinds of lung samples, and but exactly where all those samples went, we do not know, except that some of them, for sure, went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But if there so was, do you a, think it's yeah. it's most likely that mm-hmm. the SARS-CoV-2 evolved from um, you know from being around people in these mines for 40, 50 years, or what do you think is the most likely origin of it at this point? Well, I think. There is a role for that possibility, right? Because if you imagine that that there are mines, you know, they're basically bat bat viruses can sometimes jump to people, but people's people's viruses can also jump into uh, into bats. And and so you know, if you have bat excrement all over the place, if you have miners in there, people people basically being exposed to bats and bats being exposed to people. There is potentially a role for a kind of co-evolutionary process. And uh, the um, Zhong Neng Shang, the person who did the consultations with, he actually published a paper saying, well, at one point saying that, that he thought that uh, some bat viruses actually came from people. So, so we're not the only person, and you're not the only person who suggested that. We don't discuss that in our thesis, but in a proposal, but what we do discuss is the possibility, for example, that that you know one minor one could have given it to minor two, you know, or, or so on and so forth, because they were working together in the mine for several weeks before, you know, with this virus and getting sicker and sicker from this virus. So basically, all the miners, the first four miners at least, worked together in the mine for two weeks. Then after two weeks of working in the mine, they're too sick to work anymore. So they go home, but they don't go to the hospital for about another 10 days. But by the time they get to the hospital, they're really, they're pretty ill people. And and that's why three of them die. Well, but when did this happen? When did they die? How long ago they, was they it? They died in 2012. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like something significant would have had to have changed for the, uh, you know, for this virus now to be able to spread and have gone all over the world and, you know, yeah. consistently so, infectious. Yeah, yeah. So, so our our proposition is that all basically all of that, you know, all or ninety percent of that evolution happened inside the miners themselves. So, by the time they took the samples back to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that is still twenty twelve, right? That is that is eight years, seven years before the outbreak. But what's also interesting is that the in Wuhan they're building their BSL four lab, right? 
even in 2012, the lab was supposed to be finished in 2013, right? So we think that they were basically waiting for the lab to be finished before they started their experiment on these, uh, on the actual bio, uh, bio, the tissues from the miners themselves. That, that's our proposition. So, I, so do you think that it was the Institute of Virology in Wuhan and they just didn't have proper safety protocols and, you know, it had adapted by this time and then got out? Or what do you yeah, think the yeah, was? Totally adapted. I mean, we, we know that, or we think we know, that they did their, their biosafety protocols left a bit to be desired, right? There is there's the cables that the Washington Post has published. There are various publications into security, biosecurity lapses at the WIB and in China in general and so forth. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, uh, you know, fingers, if you like, pointing at problems with their system. And you have to understand too, it's a brand new lab. It's China's first ever BSL-4 lab. They have no experience of running these labs. It's, oh, possible, oh. it's possible that they bungled somehow. I thought they had multiple BSL. So this is their first BSL-4 lab? First one, yeah. Oh, okay. Another. Hmm. So anyway, that's that's our theory. So so I'm, I only bring that up because because you because uh, uh, you asked me what were you doing since the coronavirus. So that's uh, well, it's it's uh, it's co-opted the entire world. It's co-opted sadly the entire scientific community. All research for a time is essentially has been stopped and scuttled, and it's yeah. uh, you know it's, it's it's literally a virus itself in the scientific community. It's taking over all research, co-opting all interest. Yeah. I mean, everything. So, I mean, other research is not being done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have, uh, so anyway, so that was our thing. And I did not want to do this. You know, I really wanted to work, you know, you contacted me about talking about about uh, genetic determinism. But maybe we should mm. go back to that. But but they, but that is that is my answer to the question of what we've been doing. And so far, nobody has okay. been out a week. Out there has been out a week and nobody has, has come up with a, with a, you know, a, what appears to be a serious takedown of it. So my point, you know, my take on this is ours is a leading theory because I really think the zoonotic origin hypothesis is really a bit of a wreck at this point. And so, you know, there's, for example, we know that uh, pangolins don't seem to see, so don't seem to harbor coronaviruses. So, so going back to the question of what you what uh whether the, whether the bats got the got got a human virus from uh, got a virus from humans the leading explanation of why coronaviruses ever are found in pangolins is because they caught them from humans at this point mm. so you know i don't well, know this this, uh, this may feed into the uh genetic determinism argument you know again it's if if genetic ter- determinism is the rampant uh theory in science then any solutions or analysis of, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is going to be from that perspective, which may be lacking. I don't know, but I, th- I think it's a little bit lacking. You know, I mean, I mean, the one of our arguments around genetic determinism is that it is a huge amount of. Uh, it's essentially an argument based on metaphors, and so you have, for example, words like gene expression. I don't know if you discussed gene expression with. Dennis Noble, but this this was something he brought up, which is basically that genes don't express themselves. Like in textbooks, <laughs> in textbooks, that's given. You know, it's it's kind of assumed that 
that the the gene it kind of has opinions about stuff and it smiles on you know and it has facial expressions or whatever like this, right, right. this is basically a metaphor it's not a, a reality what the reality is that the, the transcription factor and histones are all at work and they they cause the you know they 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 are the immediate upstream activators of the gene but then upstream of that are other upstream activators and so on and so forth there's basically a continuous loop of activities and you can't you can't argue biologically that there is a, a special role for the for the dna in that because basically it's just loops and loops and loops and if you want to trace those loops back far enough you basically go into previous generations right you basically you go back to your own exile and then you say well and my the genes in my exile were activated by proteins from my mother and my father and so the ultimate activation of myself was my parents. And so, so you have a very complicated uh, chain of causation. But, but essentially, what, you know, uh, to say that genes express themselves is a total uh, misnomer. But there are a whole set of other uh, metaphors that are basically... Well, I mean, uh, you know, all of biology uh, appears to be just sophisticated mechanical objects and not living things. It seems to be the uh, the perception that, that things are not, uh, you know, yeah. not, there's, no, there's no cognition on any level except yeah. our own, and that uh, you know any any change is uh, random mutation and things like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, and we would we would disagree with that quite significantly because because an organism an organism is basically not a a machine, right? The difference between an organism and a machine, for example is that when you when you 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 know people talk about putting fuel in their car or they talk about putting fuel in their bodies but the difference between a car and a person is that when a car takes on board fuel we give it basically purified a purified set of molecules because all, all that fuel is being used for is combustion and what comes out at the other end is oxygen and carbon dioxide which is pretty similar to what comes out of a person but uh, the, the food that enters a person basically becomes them, right? If you, if, you, if you weigh 60 kilos and you eat, you eat several kilos of food every day, you basically become a different person every, every, what would it be, 15 days, right? You basically, your molecules are totally different after 15 days than what they were 15 days ago, right? You basically have a biological half-life that is really very short. Right. And, and the whole and that includes your your DNA. Right. There's very little of you that's still left after after, say, three months. You know, if you imagine that's your half life, there's maybe you have some bone molecules. You have very few DNA molecules for example, right, right. that are still left. Right. So so basically an organism is something that is turning over all the time. And whereas a car, a car basically is not. And what the argument that I want to make in the book mm-hmm. uh, is that is basically that in order for a society to function, right? This is quite interesting, a novel argument. But basically, in order for a society to function, we have to believe that a person is a stable object. That basically that we operate in much more similarly to a car operates than we do to actually a person, right? Because imagine that that, you know, the wheels of justice turn quite slowly, but you murder someone on the 1st of January, and after 30 days, your molecules are completely different from each other. 
you're basically a different person 30 days or 60 days later, right? Depending on your metrics. But But basically, the argument I want to make is that we need a genetic determinist version of a person in order to operate an authoritarian, if you like, society, a civilization. Right. Well, think about it on 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 many different levels. You know, we're not just we we feel like we're one thing, but we're composed of microbes, viruses, fungi, Mm -hmm. our own cells, etc. So there's another big question. You know, why do we feel like one monolithic being when we're composed of trillions of different beings? You know, yeah. What what is us versus uh, them? Yeah. 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 So, so, and we need also a solid boundary, right? This is part of your point too, right? You, you want to propose a solid boundary, yet, you know, the inside of your gut, for example, is not a very solid boundary. It's a very porous boundary to where you begin and end. And, and so, but in order, in order for us to operate a society that is the kind of civilization that we've grown used to, we have to have an idea of a person that basically doesn't involve them changing every every two weeks or month or, or whatever you want to say uh, from one organism into another, right? We basically have to to assume that that these subjects, the subjects of the state, are basically static objects, and so that becomes a become this becomes the explanation of why we need a genetic determinist understanding of the body because. Because if you but think do we that, need do we need one or do we need an understanding yeah, of the do. body a better understanding period? We 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 no. I'm saying that we need one. We need one in order to operate an authoritarian, you know, civilized uh, type society. Because because if you think about Native American cultures, for example, many of them had this idea of the continuously developing being. Right? That you, for example, they would take names. They would acquire a name at a certain age, and then it might be changed based on their achievements and so forth, right? Now, in our society, changing your name is a huge deal. You have to go right. to the government. You have to tell them that, you, that you're that you changing your name. You know, they basically t- make you jump through every conceivable hoop because they, the, the, the nature of our society is, a, is that, you know, they want to have a social security number for you. They want to have... You'd have well. Not, not only that. Look at law. Look at look at punishment. Yeah, so yeah. If you commit a if you murder someone yeah. twenty years ago and they sentence you to life in prison. Yeah. You know, you would say that you've changed countless times over, both in yeah. you know uh, how you think, what you think, yourselves, yeah. and on and on and on and on. But yet, the same thing called you is still being punished. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is exactly my point that we need that understand a genetic determinist type understanding of society in order for it to function in the way that we've come to to expect so that so that so that it took it took you know one of the building blocks of civilization was basically a transition from this idea of an organism that is continuously developing all the time and changing and gaining new experiences and becoming wiser and becoming uh, more, you know, sophisticated and basically changing into the idea of a fixed organism that is essentially the same from from day one to to the day that it dies. Mm. Yeah, I mean, many many questions. Uh, you know, again, where is the life in a cell? Mm-hmm. Where is the uh, you know is a it, 
I don't know. I mean, you know, there's lots of questions to ask to people, uh, you know, you know, so what is a person like, like I thought, you know, out of all the days I've ever lived or you've ever lived, you probably only remember maybe 0.1% of them, mm -hmm. maybe less, yeah. but yet you are who you are. And that's a strange thing as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that, that Buddhists and people who practice, you know, yogic wisdom traditions would say that's all an illusion, right? But, but my, you know, my suggestion is it's a necessary illusion. Uh, it's not a necessary illusion for you to live, but it's a necessary illusion to have the kind of society that we have. And so that these things, you know, the, all I'm trying to say is that these things are intimately connected to each other, right? It's not just a biological question. It's not just a political question. These things are all bound up with each other. And we have to understand. Yeah, I believe they are. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, what do you think is the reason that people feel threatened? Because they seem to feel very threatened about thinking about biology in a different way than a mechanical sense. It's because they, they don't want to bring religion into it? Or what, what do you think is the reason? I, I think it's because our, you know, it's the most heretical thing that you can basically do at this point is, is to basically rethink uh, biology in that kind of a way, right? There is no greater heresy because we've organized so much of our society around that concept right if, if you you know the the basic legitimacy of our society is provided by our bi biological idea of a genetically determined person that that is the fundamental argument of the book that i want to make and if you if you undermine that that genetic determinist outlook of the per of understanding of the person, you basically undermine our, our, the most basic assumptions of our social organization. Because you basically say, for example, that that organisms are not uh, hierarchical structures; they're actually cooperatives, right? You're basically saying right. that an organism is a cooperative between its between its organs, between its cells, between its genome between its, its, you know, including its water content, and that basically all of these things feed into each other, and there is no, as Dennis, you know, to go back to Dennis Noble's phrase, there's no privileged level of, of causation, but that means ultimately that the, the being is a cooperative. And if you say that the, you know, societies basically legitimate themselves based on their, on their understanding of the universe, and if your understanding of the universe is that it's cooperative in nature, that is not how we run our society. Well, I mean, yeah, I, within any individual person, there's, there, I, I think there is a hierarchy for sure. Um, you know, for instance, there's somatic cells seem to be non-replaceable, but uh, their microbiome is. You, know, you could have multiple bacteria that can accomplish the same function, let's say, in your gut, but uh, liver cells, you know, do not appear to be replaceable. And then it does appear that the brain and the cells in the brain have an endowment uh, that allows them to uh, be preferential in some sense to the other cells in the body. So I, I, I do, I, I just personally do see hierarchy, but yeah. I also see like, uh, you know, everyone has to work together as well. So I see a cooperation and it's just strange. It's like I said, the whole phenomenon is strange that everyone is composed of so many different disparate things mm -hmm. that sometimes they're allegiant to the whole and sometimes they're not, but yet they feel like one thing. Like if you were able to, talk to a dog or just observe a dog's behavior, the dog appears to operate in the same way. It, it believes it's one creature. It operates that way. It has no knowledge of what it, it's composed of. 
So it's strange that there's this cooperation by all these different organisms, but yet now they seed over, I guess, ultimate control to to the one, you know, to the emergent one that comes from this this holobiont. Yeah, that there ha- there has to be some. I would agree with you that there has to be some kind of you know there has to be some understanding among the organism that that each of the parts doesn't override the needs of all the others. Right, that that definitely has to exist, but but I I don't think that that necessarily has to arise through hierarchy, or certainly not of the hi- kind of hierarchy that you just described. You know, the the question of which cells turn over, right, is an interesting part of your argument because uh, there's you know many cell types. You know, gut cells, for example, they turn over all the time. But even they do, but they're they're replaced yeah. by the same kind of cell. But yeah, yeah. what I was saying is like, um, you know, if I have a, a bacteria in my gut that produces a certain metabolite that you know I need, yeah. um, I can still have a dysbiosis, and another bacteria may take over that function, but I still yeah. can survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, you've got several levels of replacement that are possible, right? You have in an example you just gave at the end, you have. A different species of gut uh, microbe takes over from another one. You've also got cell replacement. You know, many, many most, the vast majority of your cells in your body replace each other all the time. And uh, it's basically there's a turnover of the actual cells themselves. But then the second, you know, even the stem cells are dividing all the time, right? So they're they're replacing themselves and. Uh, but you are, but you have, but there are some cell types where that's not true, right? So, so you can do, um, you can do gene editing or genetic engineering of people's retinal cells because those retinal cells are the, that you have at your age fifty or whatever it is are the same retinal cells that you were basically born with, right? The cell type doesn't, the cells don't change, they don't divide and they're not replaced, right? So, so there's that the level of replacement of those cells. Is simply that there's metabolic turnover within them, right? So, so those, you know, the DNA will still be changing. The, the uh, will be repaired, for example, or you have the the water molecules will change, the oil, the fat molecules of the cell uh, membrane will change, and so forth. So you still have a turnover in those cells. So you've got different levels of turnover in different parts. Mm-hmm. Of the body. But this is why you have you have to keep eating, right? Because because that. Those you you're losing you're losing molecules, but you have to gain them all the time too. So the basic the basic property of the organism, I would say, is cooperation, right? It's not there may yeah. be you can you may, may be able to make some kind of argument around the hierarchy based on the fact that you know obviously a cancerous cell is a problem because it overrides the the needs of the organism itself. So well, I think a, a cancer is actually a completely separate self. I think it, it, it somehow takes on a completely separate self. It's a living thing yeah. that is no longer you. It seems mm-hmm. to have all the hallmarks of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I think there's a good, you know, there's a good question to be asked around that, right? Because, you know, Henrietta Lacks, her cells mm-hmm. are still living, right? She's long dead and yet her cells... Her cells are still going on, so there is a you know there are, there are for sure are interesting arguments to be made around that, but much more interesting arguments than normally get made in my opinion. But but you know it's right yeah because if you if, if all you do is pigeonhole yourself in 
genetic determinism, then you can't even think any of these things. You're you're shamed for anthropomorphizing, you know, biology, which is to yeah. me is ridiculous, you know. So if you don't open up your mind and at least think what else could it be, then you're never gonna think any of these things. Yeah. So 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 what is what is the word gene expression? Right? It's an anthropomorphism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right? So so basically the, the you're not allowed to anthropomorphize in biology except when it comes to DNA. <laughs> I know. It's true. It's true. Like what is messenger? What is messenger RNA? Right? It's the secretary of the DNA. That's that's the that's the mindset, right? That's going into that. What what about translation? Right? The the pro the the messenger RNA is translated into proteins, right? That is also an anthropomorphism. And what yeah. you're basically saying is that a translation, this is this is this is where the metaphors get really interesting to me, because because a translation in normal usage implies like I have a sentence in French and I translate it into English. And the goal of the translator is to take the information content in the first sentence and preserve it in the second sentence, right? You don't add it, you don't subtract anything. But if you think about a messenger RNA and the amount of information that it contains, right? It's basically a linear molecule with four different nucleotides in it. And if you think about the information content of a protein, a protein has uh, 20, 20 odd amino acids, right? So the, right there, you've got to step up in information content. Uh, it also, those amino acids have all kinds of biological properties, right? So a nucleotide, the only biological property really possessed by a nucleotide is to bind to other nucleotides of the same, you know, the opposite kind. Whereas the biological properties of, of amino acids are positive charges, negative charges, Hydrophobicity, size, shape. You know. Well, you if you look at if you look at a protein, it has information on multiple levels. You know, its shape, yeah, its cavities is a, is a certain level. Because, of information. Yeah, I mean, I was going to make a list, and that, that's exactly correct, right? So, but but how do we what we call that? We call the information content of the messenger uh, RNA as a translation of the content of the of the information content of the protein. And nothing could be wronger than that, right? Because, because messenger RNA has massively less, orders of magnitude less information. You know, if you ever watch a protein in action, you see how incredibly complicated and sophisticated a protein is. You know, you look at the spikes, the spikes of the coronavirus. I don't know if you know this, but the spikes of the coronavirus basically sit up on the membrane or they fall down again. They're like basically popping up and down all the time, right? What do you mean they're popping up and down? They they they're, they're like they're like have you seen those things by side of road where somebody like pumps air into a balloon and it and it like kind of like it has it adopts a shape according to uh, to to um this is to attract customers or whatever I guess. But like you just gotta basically Oh those those guys on the side of the road, the air blows into them and they inflate and, and yeah. fling fling their arms up and then they go down again. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing. So it's basically <laughs> doing that, it's doing that all the time, right? And it's to avoid the immune system. Right? Really? Yeah. So Wait a minute. So the so the so the SARS CoV two virion is actually it actually moves and it's active, it's not completely yeah, yeah. passive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. So it's moving so inside this, you know, this is in a liquid medium, right? It's it's moving up and down 
And so that when it's in the up position, it can bind to the ACE2 receptor. And when it's down, it, it cannot, but it also evades the immune system, right? So it's a way, it's kind of like shaking around to get to get away from the antibodies. So this, you know, this is one of the, one of my, my you know, my gripes about living organisms. I, I believe viruses are living organisms. And this I believe one, they, I believe they are too, yes. This is, one of the reasons is that, you know, we always visualize a virus as this inert sort of crystal structure, which is not really doing anything, right? Like, uh, you see these great electron microscopes. I've I've watched a video of a virus. Uh, I don't know which one it was. It was on YouTube, you know, by a certain scientist. But it yeah. docks with the membrane of the cell, and then the capsid opens up yeah. like a sophisticated machine and anchors yeah. into the membrane. And mm -hmm. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. It was like you. It was like I dropped a uh, a crane in a certain spot in a box, and it opened up and assembled itself and started digging. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, but but the way that we normally visualize viruses as is just like oh it's a coronavirus so it's got round with little knobs on and it's just static we have this static visualization of what of how the virus is but when you add your your image right and mine of the of the spike moving up and down and so on and so forth we realize that it's far more sophisticated than than, than that but but that's do you, do you think that um, viruses are able to you know, do you think there's a, a co-infection of multiple viruses at once into a cell? And do you think that they transmit information, let's say, using the cell membrane amongst each other or, or outwards before they enter? Or do they coordinate entry in any way? Vi viruses, I mean, I'm a virologist, right? You know, I am continuously amazed at how many interesting things viruses can do. We had, uh, I used to work on, um, well, the lab opposite me used to work on uh, cauliflower mosaic virus. The cauliflower mosaic virus, uh, it used to have this system where uh, a small part of its genome, so it has a DNA and an RNA genome, and a small part of its DNA genome produces just a small stretch of like a few hundred nucleotides, produces massive quantities of small, uh, uh, signal, small, small interfering RNAs. And basically spams up the whole of the small RNA signaling system of the cell, right? So it's basically sending out all this totally spoof information, and presumably some of the some of the information is also doing something. Like some of those small RNAs probably have target target messenger RNAs and target genes and so forth. But for the most part, they're just spamming the system, right? So, but it's sending out this really sophisticated pieces of information all the time. And that may well also spread between cells, right? We know that small RNA spread between cells. So like, so like you know, the, my admiration for viruses and what they can do is, is basically endless. Mm. And it's not quite what you described, but it's not, you know, it's the closest example that I know of. But I'd be very surprised if they didn't do all kinds of other stuff. That, you know, we, we're only fathoming viruses. I mean, we've learned a tremendous amount about coronaviruses that we didn't know. Uh, six months ago, simply because of all the research that's been done on that. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I guess one more thing is I, I had read a paper recently that said uh, a certain virus. I don't remember which one, but it produced um, the ratio of uh, filled to empty virions was like a hundred to one. And I thought, mm -hmm. why would it do such a thing? It's not stupid. Yeah. So I figured maybe they would be decoys for the immune system, and that's mm -hmm. why it produced so many empty virions. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So anyway, it's just another example of, of, of viral behavior. Yeah, I mean, we make all these assumptions. You know, people make assumptions about RNA. When they, when they think about RNA, they think it's just a different kind of DNA, but it's really not. And we make all kinds of assumptions about what viruses do and why they do them and so forth that, you know, so often turn out to be wrong. Mm. Well, very good, uh, Jonathan. I know I want to respect your time. I know you had about an hour allocated. and We're, we're up. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and when will your book come out? Uh, how can they you know, learn more about you? Yeah, so, so the, uh, well, to get on the mailing list, the best thing is to get on the mailing list of independentsciencenews.org. That's, uh, that's a simple no-brainer. And uh, so, so we'd like people to reach us that way. And you can read about our virus proposal, origins proposal on that website, which, by the way, was just retweeted by George Church, I found out. Oh, nice. Uh, so I think uh, some people are taking it seriously. And, and I hope that the virology community will take it seriously, too. And mm. that's still, you know, that's still up in, up in the air because, you know, nobody know, in the virology community knows who we are, you know. So, so this will come totally from left field. And we chose not to publish it in the peer-reviewed literature. And we make some kind of slightly rude comments about the ability of virologists to, to basically deal with this question of lab origins. Because basically, you know, what, what you're, if you want to investigate the lab origins thesis, you have to kind of imagine that somebody you know or, you know, your friends know is actually culpable for this, for this virus outbreak. And that's not a very comfortable proposition. But in our... Yeah. Uh, in our estimation, the virology community has not dealt with that that question properly, and so yes. so, um, so that's one reason why we chose to publish our article in the non-peer-reviewed literature because we do publish articles in the peer-reviewed literature, but we decided not to put that one there. So well, there's, um, there's no censorship going on at all. So why, <laughs> why why should you be afraid to publish in a peer-reviewed paper? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, making a joke, by the way. Yeah, no, I understand that. I mean, I mean, I understand. I mean, the, the genetic determinism, you know, I have, uh, you know, our interest in biology is the bits of biology that other people don't want to talk about. That's our history, if you like. And uh, so that's one of my interests in genetic determinist, non-genetic determinist approaches to biology is that very few people want to discuss it. There's a great, you know, little, there's a few little great, really excellent communities of biology who discuss these things very intensively and very productively. But for the most part, the, virolo- the, the, the biology community is oblivious to all this conversation going on around them. But, but basically, self-organization and, and the sort of allied theories is basically the future of biology, as far as I'm concerned. There's no other. Hmm. Well, very good. Well, Jonathan, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's refreshing to, to speak to someone that... Uh, is not afraid to speak out and entertain different views. So thank you for coming. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. I appreciate it, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.